Welcome to this Columbia University Comunitas Public Management Podcast. Today we'll be featuring a talk by Columbia Professor William B. Emick. Dr. Emick has held a wide variety of important government posts in both state and city government, including serving as the housing czar for New York State and director of strategic planning for the New York Fire Department following the 9-11 attacks. Dr. Emick will be talking today about structuring public-private partnerships between government, the private sector, and nonprofit groups. Drawing on cases from the U.S., Asia, Latin America, and the Middle East, Professor Emick will outline some of the key elements needed for making public-private partnerships work. There's lots of reasons why I think public-private partnerships are a good idea, uh, and we're going to spend most of the morning talking about them. And I'm going to give you some pretty specific examples. My perspective from Brazil, also a little bit from Colombia, your neighbor, um, India, a couple of very powerful examples of New York City. When you walk around New York City today, in general, you will say, wow, this, this is amazing. You know, 9 million people live here, 16 million people are in Manhattan every day for the business of the world. This place works. It's one of the best cities in the world. It is. I'm, I'm not bragging, it's the truth. But if you had come here 25 years ago, it was one of the worst cities in the world. You would be scared being here in 1991, and you, you would rightly be scared. I have an apartment right next door here, and during those times, every night, I would go to bed to gunshots lots of gunshots in that park right over there. It was a major drug dealing, violence, crime. We had the most murders per capita of any big city in the world, the most crime of any big city. This place was a mess. It really was a mess. 25 years later, it's not. And you know what, the, if you had to pick one thing of why it's different, the people haven't changed. The government's salaries haven't changed. What's changed? The way we manage the public sector. That's what's changed. And you'll have an opportunity to see two just outstanding examples of that while you're here. Central Park, which 25 years ago was the most dangerous place in New York City. Today, it's closed from 2 a.m. to 6 a.m. It is the most visited tourist attraction in this region. How does that happen, right? How does that happen? Same place, same city, same people. It's managed differently. It's managed, believe it or not, it's a public park owned by the public. Anybody can go there from any place in the world, free, no charge. It's not run by the city of New York. It's actually run by a nonprofit organization. And that's made all the difference in the world. So these things are very powerful. So we'll talk about why you partner, what leads to success in partnerships, these examples including Central Park, and then some other things as well. So this little graph to me illustrates the options of carrying out public programs. And they're really three options, three big options in my view. So the government, public, can do it itself. 
and that's the norm, right? Police, fire, transportation, parks, in general, if it's a public program, the government taxes people for it, and then government workers carry it out. That's the default. That's what we normally do. But as I said, for a very long time, it hasn't been entirely that way. So the first really serious kinds of cooperation was with the private for-profit sector. And the first way, which you're all familiar with, and this is where a lot of the corruption surfaces, is when government contracts with a private organization for goods or services. Way back in, you know, in the 16th century, government contracted with private suppliers to buy guns, to buy uniforms, to get food, sometimes to put up buildings, right? So contracting between the government and the private sector has been around for a long time. But I want you to keep in your head what may sound like an academic distinction, but it's not, it's extremely important. The relationship between contracting parties is dramatically different than a relationship between partners. Even if you're the private sector, I'm the public sector, I contract with you. And you think about it private to private, private firm contracts. A contract is a bargain that says, I want this, you'll give me that, we exchange, that's the end of it. We're not partners, we don't cooperate, we really don't have anything to do with one another except supply and demand. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I'm just saying it's very limited. So when government early on contracted for equipment or supplies, it didn't ask the supplier, well, how do you think we should use these things? You know, yes, a manual of instructions, but didn't ask for advice on strategy, didn't ask for participation. Those people weren't involved when the military went into service. The relationship between contractors and suppliers is limited. It's not operational. It's just a transaction. Second way, and this is one of the ideas, one of the ideas that has transformed the world since the 1980s is a term that I'm sure you're all very familiar with, privatization. That's a relationship where, for a variety of reasons, the public sector says, we don't do this very well, we don't have enough money to do everything we want to do. The private sector approaches the public sector and says, you know what, we could do airlines a lot better than you and you could get a lot of money from us if you turn over your airline. In the 1980s, two people in particular, Ronald Reagan, who had about the same intellectual capacity as Donald Trump, <laughs> better advisors, right, better advisors, but Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan really came together and articulated an idea that has really changed the world for, for almost three decades. And that is, you know what's wrong in the world? There's too much government. Government does too much and doesn't do it well. So we pay too much taxes for lousy services. And what we should do is take as much as we can of the public sector and privatize it. Give it over to the private sector and then government can focus on what's left. 
And so you'll pay less taxes, you'll get better services, the private sector knows how to run things, they know how to run businesses, you'll get better service from the airline, and it'll be cheaper, and everybody wins. And that idea caught fire, and it's still burning, although it's running out of steam a little bit because most of the things that are relatively easy to privatize have been privatized, but there's still Depending on how you define it, there's still potential opportunities for privatization in Brazil, in the United States. Donald Trump, believe it or not, one of the few ideas he's articulated is that he wants to privatize air traffic control, which was the first proposal that Ronald Reagan made in 1983. So that might tell you something, right? 1983, Ronald Reagan, chief of privatization, he's going to privatize airline traffic controllers. 2017, now Donald Trump is going to do it. Wait a minute, if my math is right, that was like 34 years ago. That should have been on your list of the idea, that's a good idea, but maybe it's time hasn't come. Maybe it's time will never come. So, public Private cooperation can be contracting, can be priv privatization, can be collaboration, and we'll talk about that. A more informal working relationship. I think of that, the best example I think of is when I, I was uh, Deputy Commissioner of the Fire Department. For in emergency circumstances, the public and the private sector collaborate in emergency response. And in fact, we do it proactively plan ahead so the utilities and the water companies, the retail, we make plans for floods, for terrorism, how we're going to respond and what the command structure will be. So it's not a formal contract, it's a collaboration. It has a memorandum of understanding, but it's usually periodic and temporary. But it's a way that we cross sectors. And then the one that we're going to spend most of our time talking about this morning, which is public-private partnerships which are formal, which have contracts, where each party maintains its identity, so the government doesn't turn over the service to the private sector, they don't take it over, but the private sector doesn't just carry out direction. Sometimes public and private, sometimes public, private, and nonprofit are collaborators in a formal contractual relationship to get something done like build a bridge, like build some of the Olympic facilities during the, uh, the Olympics and the World Cup in Brazil. Project specific, project is over. Sometimes the collaboration then ends. Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes you build a bridge and the private sector continues to run the toll and the financing and everything else. In the case of Central Park, the public-private partnership has been going on for 25 years. And it continues. So there are a variety of ways that public-private pri partnerships can work. And what's changed, particularly over the last 30 or so years, is the social sector, the third sector, the nonprofit. There are, one of the problems with this area, which I'm doing work on now, and we're, uh, we have a new book coming out in the spring, called Sharing Success about public-private partnerships and particularly how the third sector is transforming the way we approach it. 
there's no good name for all those institutions. In the U.S., we call them nonprofit or you know not taxable organizations, but in a lot of places they're taxable, right? So that doesn't make any sense. And when we say social organizations, some people think informal or charity. It's a mixed bag of organizations which are not for profit. They're not companies with shareholders designed to make money, and they're not the government. They're not elected, they're not part of the government structure, but they participate more and more strongly in carrying out public policy, public issues. Sometimes by contract, sometimes by privatization, and sometimes by partnership. Just to give you a, a huge statistic which always you know, surprises me. When I was in graduate school, think a few years ago, and think what I would define as social sec sector, services for old people, services for children, services for sick people, services for disabled people, food pantries. In the world, 90% of those activities were paid for by the government. And 90% of the people doing that work worked for the government all around the world, okay? 90-90. Flash forward to 2017. Today, 90% of the money for those activities still comes from the government. Even though the, you know, huge philanthropies and lots of private organizations and they raise they're big, billions of dollars. Warren Buffett gives away $50 billion, lots of money. It's dwarfed it by, it's a drop in the bucket compared to what government spends globally. So 90% of the money for human services, social services, doing good, is still provided by the government. But what's changed? 90% of the people who deliver those services don't work for the government totally reversed. So even though government is still ponying up most of the money, a lot of the actual interaction with people is done by people who don't work for the government. And that really, to me, is part of the essence of what this public-private partnership is. And the reason why that shift has happened so dramatically is, in general, people who work for third sector organizations do a better job of delivering human services than civil servants. Not because civil servants are bad people. Probably if you looked at the civil servant and the person who, they'd look like the same people. But the context at which they work and the way they're managed and the way they're supervised is so different. You know, when you serve people, you wanna be there and do what they need to be helped. But when you work for the government, you can't do what you're not entitled to do. You can't do what your civil service title says you're supposed to do. You cannot do things for people that are not defined by the contract, right? So this is the landscape of how we get done public services. And increasingly, the opportunity for making the world a better place is here. So it's partnerships between the government and the private sector, between the government and the social sector, and between all three. 
And why? Because you can get more done. They work, these, these are not facts. These are my propositions of why this sector is growing and why it will continue to grow. Because you get more done. They're more productive. They're more efficient. They make more money. There's a bridge that you may go past here. It's called the Tappan Zee Bridge. It comes from one side of New York to the other. It's needed to be replaced for 25 years. It's a public bridge. But the government couldn't do it. It could do it. The governors wouldn't do it because the price tag was so high and the time it would take was so long that none of them wanted to pull the trigger because they'd never get the credit and they'd get all the blame. And more than likely, it would be huge cost overruns and it would take much longer. And so every governor just spent millions and millions of dollars and crossed their fingers and hoped that it wouldn't fall down. If you drove up there now, you would see that the new bridge is almost done. It's been the replacement bridge, which was estimated to take between 10 and 15 years, is going to be finished in five. And the cost, which was estimated at 12 to 15 billion, will be less than six. And if it's more, the private company partner is on the hook to pay the overrun. So it's way cheaper, it's way faster, it's gonna be way better. We don't know that yet, but I think it will be. <laughs> so it's not just better, it's also cheaper, potentially. A lot of times you do things like the bridge that you wouldn't be able to do anywhere, anyway. When you go across sectors, you can get skills and people that you could never recruit if you're in the government. Even if they wanted to, they'd never come, there are lots of reasons. You can get the great people, you can get the great technology people, just like that, to work on public policy because you partner with them. It's a way to globalize really quickly. And if you look at the companies that have really exploded on the global scene, more than likely they've collaborated in some way, shape, or form with local partners. It's a way for the private sector to get new customers, get new business, same thing for the third sector. Sharing risk, that's a huge part of why the new bridge is going faster and costing less because the risk is shared between the sectors. And you share costs as well. So there are lots of good reasons. There are lots of different partnerships. Uh, there are some I mentioned Memorandum of Understanding Loose Partnerships. There are partnerships that are strictly financial. There are partnerships that are marketing. You see all the time, those of you who have children, where movies are advertised at Burger King and Burger King is advertised in the movie. And so there are organizations that cross market. So it's a loose collaboration. It's formal, it's legal, it makes money for both sides, but they don't really get into each other's core business. But all of you are working on computers that say Apple or say something else, but they're actually a value chain network of probably 20 or 25 different companies that participated in creating that laptop, which is seamlessly presented to you as a done deal. But 
it requires multiple private organizations to partner very closely to come up with that I mean, the breakthrough that I think about right away is in the early years of Apple Computer, I'm an Apple user, you couldn't access Microsoft on an Apple computer, and it was a major deferment. Well, over time, they recognized, hey, it'd be better for both sides. Let's collaborate now. Most of what you do on any computer is, is, uh, is transportable. And I mentioned collaborations before, so we'll get there. So let's, let's talk about some very specific cases of how public-private partnerships have really changed the world from all over the world. I'll start with Colombia. Tom knows Colombia pretty well. He teaches in Colombia for us. Uh, I've, I've gone, it's, it's scary to tell you, I've been to Colombia, my last trip was a month ago, was my 112th trip to Colombia. Uh, I first went to Colombia in 1992 and pa Pablo Escobar, if you, if you have Netflix, watch Narcos. It's just great. It's not only great theater, it's, it's not that far from the truth. But when I first got to Columbia, I, I had a student from here who invited me, and I, I, Cali was the first place I went, and I got a, he met me at the airport. I got in the car, shut the door, boiling hot. So I go to, you know, it was 1992, I go to roll down the window. And he said, no, the windows don't roll down. I said, oh, all right, poor country, maybe that's it. So we're driving from the airport. We hit a stop sign. He goes right through. Stop light. He goes right through. I said, you know, you, you know, I'm not in that much of a hurry, don't you? He said, in this neighborhood, you don't stop. I went to the Intercontinental Hotel. They said, they picked me up for dinner at 7.30. Of course, ultimately, they showed up at 10 o'clock at night. So I was sitting in the lobby for a long time. And while I was sitting there, like 50 people came in, five people like men my age, and the rest were women about somewhere between 16 and 22. And they had rented the whole top of the Intercontinental. They were drug people. Drug people ran Colombia in 1992. Uh, and it was a very dangerous and bad place. It was really crazy. If you go to Colombia today, uh, particularly after you watch Narcos, you'll be amazed. It's not perfect, but people from Venezuela now are, are refugees in Colombia in hopes of a better life. And if, if I was in Bogota at a wedding, Big wedding, the richest people in Colombia, outside. There was some invisible security, but not much. In 1992, there would have been soldiers at the place, and it probably would have been blown up anyway. So Colombia has been transformed not just by public-private partnerships, but public-private partnerships have played a very big role. And I, I want to give you two very specific examples. So one is water services. Just like many places in the world, water has always traditionally been a government service. People need water to live. Government builds the pipes, brings the water in. In many places, water is free or nominally charged for. That's the way it was in Colombia. In the early 1990s, there's a very beautiful resort called Cartagena on the Caribbean, where people from all over the world come to Colombia. It was a major, it still is a major tourist industry. And so the story goes, one day in 1992, 
a very rich woman in a five-star hotel turned down her shower in the morning and screamed. It was blood red. This was the, so she thought somehow someone had been killed and they put him in the water supply. <laughs> so she thought it was blood. It wasn't blood. It was rust. The water system in Cartagena was so bad that even at the top of the food chain, the water was not, not only not drinkable, it was not bathable. And it was largely the result of corruption in the government water agency. Uh, the unions and the elected politicians were in there together. Most of the money that was paid, a lot of people didn't pay at all, and the people who did pay paid in cash. You could only pay in cash. Guess what happens with cash? It's very trans. But to credit, and this is where leadership comes in, the mayor of Cartagena at that time realized the game was over, that if Cartagena did not change, did not reform, the goose that was laying the golden eggs would die, no one would come there anymore, and there'd be no cash to give around. So, in the nature of the times, he announced, we're going to privatize the water system. And he put it open for bid. Three companies bid, one from Spain, one from Germany, one from France. They picked the company from Spain. They started to negotiate. They were going to sell the system. The Spanish company was going to fix it. And again, all these stories are great. It actually happened to be true. In the later stages of the contract negotiation, the mayor got a call from a senator from Bogota. He said, hello, mayor, we heard a lot down here in Bogota about what you're doing. Cartagena sounds very exciting. And the mayor started to wax on and on. Yes, it's great. We're breaking ground to be the first one in Colombia. He said, well, the reason why I called is to tell you what you're doing is illegal and unconstitutional. So forget it. You can't do it. It's against the law. And he wasn't kidding. It was. So here they were, they had this great plan, they'd already picked the winner, they're negotiating the final contract, and now it's illegal. But what wasn't illegal was public-private partnerships based on a contract. And they rejiggered the deal. And the government maintained ownership of 55%, the private sector took 45%, instead of being a permanent agreement, it was what they called a franchise, which means it lasted for 20 years. At the end of 20 years, the property would revert back to the government. To make a long story short, it worked fabulously. The whole system was revitalized. The private sector runs it, but the government has a huge equity position and they sit on the board. The franchise, when it expired, was renewed with the same bidder, has some of the best water in the world, and 50 different municipalities around Colombia have now modeled the same kind of reform. So not a privatization, and I think this is very important as we think about government and government assets. One of the dangers of privatization is you sell a government asset for way less than it's worth. Would you really want to sell your water system to somebody from another continent? What would happen if Donald Trump was elected, right? I mean, do you really want another country to own your water? My answer is no. You probably don't want them to own your natural resources either. But how about a partnership where you retain the majority of equity, where you have a seat on the board, but you get their expertise? Does that make sense? It does to me.
and it worked in water, and it's worked, by the way, not just in 50 cities in Colombia, but that model has worked around the world over the last 20 years. There's another example from, from Colombia, which really started in Brazil, in Curitiba. So what this is, is basically a subway above ground using attached buses. Conceptually, not a great breakthrough, but it changed everything in Bogota because they had no subway system. They couldn't afford to build one. They're talking about building one now, finally, a limited line. But using this model where the government turned over the lanes of the highway, so these were, they didn't turn over ownership, they turned over control to a private bus system. The government provided some of the financing. The private company provided the rest. The private company collects the receipts. They cover their cost and, and the agreed profit, whatever is left over from debt service and profit goes to the government. There's not much, but the system has really, when you got off the phone and got off the plane in Bogota 20 years ago, you started coughing and you kept coughing till you left. Today, I mean, maybe the air's not perfect, but it's, it's pretty good. It's pretty good. And one of the main reasons is this bus system. And so it, the idea, again, the idea comes from Brazil. They stole the idea, but they implemented it. And it's the main way to get along. So I talk about this in my management class. And people are, oh, Columbia, wow, that's very impressive. You know, and a couple of years ago, one of the students raises his hand and says, well, I don't know about you, but I actually think it's terrible. I said, really? I said, where are you from? He said, Bogota. <laughs> I said, oh, really? Really? You think it's terrible? He said, yeah, it's terrible. I said, why is it terrible? He said, go to YouTube, look at the films. I said, what do they show? He said, you can't get on. It's packed. I said, oh, so let me get this straight. This system is terrible because too many people use it. Yeah. I said, okay, I can understand how that could be a problem. Maybe you need more buses and more systems, but if it's so terrible, why are all these people using it? So it's pretty, pretty fabulous. I'm not saying these things are simple. They're complicated. And as we saw, see our thinking, we'll see what the future brings in the aftermath of the Olympics in Rio, allegations, maybe truth about corruption. All the, there are risks in public-private partnerships. But on the other side, if there were no partnerships in Colombia, the water would still be polluted, and so would the air. There's no way the public would have been able to do it on their own. They couldn't. And the politics of Colombia would not have permitted privatization. So the public-private partnership became the way forward. And it was hugely successful. And I believe it, it can be successful in other places. I'm going to talk very briefly about Brazil. Just a quick overview. And I want to come back to it at the end. 
because I have a lot to say about Brazil, and I'm sure you do too. And I'm sure our positions, maybe some of them are similar, some of them are different. Maybe we're both right, maybe we're both wrong, I don't know. But I'll give you the quick overview of an outsider's perception of public-private partnerships in Brazil. Then I want to go quickly to India and New York City, where I think I know more than you do, so I'll be more comfortable. And then we'll come back to Brazil and, and talk a little bit more. And particularly, I want to talk about Juntos and Communitas, um, which I mentioned the book that Howard Buffett and I are, are, have written. It's going to come out. It's about public-private partnerships. It has examples from New York City, big examples from New York City. It has big examples from India, which I'm going to talk about briefly. And it has two examples from Brazil. It's the story of the Rio Olympics, which we call a cautionary tale. So it's not bad, not good, it's in between. And we talk about Communitas and Juntos as what we think is a model public-private partnership. So I want to talk about that in more detail once we finish. The Olympics will be, I think, more controversial than Communitas, but who knows? Maybe not. We'll see. So my view of the history is there have been public-private partnerships in Brazil for a long time, mostly in highways and construction. They have been largely, at the state level, largely successful for the most part. Again, I would argue that those, those projects would not have been done if it were not for the partnership arrangement. Allegations of corruption with many of them, yes. Nevertheless, without the partnership, those things wouldn't have happened, and in the long run, Brazil would be a much worse place were it not for the partnerships. A lot of the exploration in deep water has been public-private partnership for the, uh, for the petroleum sector. Um, again, I think there has been, there is a challenge doing business in Brazil. Tom, as, a, as our partner from Colombia in Brazil, um, I think you support my position that it's challenging. Um, the legal system, the government system is challenging, and, and we love the people. Tom lives in Brazil. He moved to Brazil, so he loves Brazil. But yeah, I mean, seriously? Seriously. We had an executive program with the city of Rio, and they didn't pay. Normally, I've done international work for a quarter of a century. When somebody doesn't pay, I never deal with them again. I never speak with them. <laughs> and if they ever want to do business with me again, they pay up front, 30 days in advance, or the program is canceled. So I learned my lesson a long time ago in Nicaragua. So if I'm Brazil, you don't want to be compared to Nicaragua. Unfortunately, that's a problem, and I think it remains a problem, and I think that, that the problems with corruption are very much related to the challenges of doing legitimate business with the government. It's just impossible. You have the worst of all worlds, right? You have 
a large amount of corruption in public projects and you have a structure that makes it impossible for honest people to do business on the public side. But the good news is it can be changed in 10 seconds. It doesn't take much to do it. It really doesn't. It change a few laws and a few attitudes and you get some leadership and it's done. That happened here in New York with two mayors. So I can speak personally and we don't have to talk about Brazil. I'll talk about New York, right? So you guys are doing more and more with partnerships between the university and business and the universities and government. This is all good stuff. It will have long-term benefits. You cannot address public-private partnerships in Brazil without talking about the World Cup and Olympics, and many people have talked about it and written about it, and the story's not over. I think, really, we won't be able to say definitively on balance it was successful or not successful for 10 or 15 years. I personally think right now the final decision will be much more favorable than the current attitude. So the attitude was when the games were finally over, everybody was, wow, what a surprise. We thought it would be a disaster. It wasn't a disaster. It went well. It's great. Now everybody's saying, oh, it's a disaster. Everybody's going to jail. It was all corruption. It's terrible. I think we're going to shift back. Um, I think in the end, many of the projects are going to be successful in the long run. I'm not, again, I'm not an apologist for corruption. I'm not saying corruption's okay, but corruption is not the only outcome, right? And just because there is corruption doesn't mean the project was a failure, right? So the, all the housing, which everybody said was just going to be housing for the rich, now it looks like it's going to be housing for a lot of working class people. It's going to be great. In the long run, it'll be great. I'm a housing person. That's my expertise. I'm betting that that's going to be viewed by history as a tremendous success on every level. We'll see, right? As Keynes said, in the long run, we're dead. So. The other, the other thing that, that I think history will say is a huge success is the whole innovation in the port area. Um, transportation to the downtown, taking down the highway, building one of the most fabulous museums in the world, which is focused on climate, which is already a huge tourist attraction, ultimately, that neighborhood will, I believe, will really flourish in terms of business and housing. It will become like Gristo. I mean, it will be, you go to Gristo, then you go here. Not just to the museum, to the whole community. It will be a place. And so in the long run, that will, I believe, be viewed as a transformative outcome of the Olympics. It will be. Does that wipe out? The problems? No. But the other side is, if you never had the Olympics, you wouldn't have any of that. You wouldn't have the rapid transit. All of the, you wouldn't have the housing. None of the things that I believe are successful would have happened at all if Rio didn't have the Olympics. So you need to be balanced about these things and think it through. So leadership may be corrupt, but leadership and the drive to say, we've got to do this, our reputation, we've got to become a world city, we've got to get this done, we've got to get it done, it got done. And without it, 
it wouldn't have got done. And you'd still be where you were and the highway would still be there and there'd be no museum and there'd be no rapid transit. And it would be as wonderful, Rio's wonderful, it was wonderful before, it'd be wonderful after. But it'd be the same Rio as it was 25 years ago. Thank you for joining us on this Columbia University Comunitas Public Management Podcast. Please join us for other podcasts here on this website.